everyone. I'm Ian Nicholas, joined by my co-host Dylan Pescatore for yet another episode of the Beyond the Whistle podcast, where we are joined by a great guest, a young face in the sports broadcasting industry who's already done some great work, Mike Cousins. Mike, how are you doing during these crazy times without live sports, and what are you doing to stay sane? Uh, I guess all things considered, you know, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I live outside of Cleveland, so when this all started back in March, it was still like 30s and 40s outside. So it was a lot of just like looking outside and, and hoping that it was going to get warmer soon. And now that it has, uh, I've made it a point to get out every day. I've ridden my bike in the last couple months more than I probably have in my entire life. We got really great trails here. So I've done a lot of that. And then, um, you know, I've talked about this with some other play-by-play guys who I'm friends with that, you know, one of the things we miss is the the research and the studying part of what we do. So I've made part of my daily routine some form of education, whether it's, you know, at the beginning, uh, I was taking some online classes that I found for free. Now it's been um, doing a lot more reading of either books I had saved up on my bedside table that I always said, oh, I'll get to that at some point, And then some point has now arrived. Um, and, and so trying to find some way every day to keep both my mind and my body active. That's terrific. So as you mentioned just to us a second ago before we started recording, you grew up in White Plains, New York, and that's, well, I guess maybe where you found your love for sports broadcasting. Where did you fall in love with sports broadcasting? What age was it? What, when did you know that this is what you wanted to do? I knew that it was something that appealed to me when I was um, in middle school and in high school, and, and really I'd say even in elementary school, but I don't know that I knew that I loved it until I was really getting into it at Syracuse where I went to college. So I grew up um, without cable TV, which mm-hmm. now uh, I guess is not as rare because you could have a streaming service. I guess we would still call that cable, but uh, I guess among my friends said I was probably the only one who didn't. So needless to say, there were not a lot of people who wanted to come over my house after school <laughs> because watching PBS when you're in middle school wasn't exactly tops on the list of things that were exciting. Probably not. So, that being said, I listened to the radio a lot when I was younger, which is still one of the things, I guess, that now makes me more of like a senior citizen than it does a 30-year-old, that I like to listen to the radio more than I do watch TV. Um, but I listen to WFAN a lot. And if people aren't familiar with that, you guys are being in the area, but it is an all-sports talk radio station that started, um, I want to say, in the late 1980s. The exact year is eluding me at the moment. But that carried the Mets games as well. So a big portion of my day after coming home from school for so many years was hurrying up to finish my homework so that I could be ready for a 7-10 first pitch that was going to be on the radio that I couldn't see on TV. Mm-hmm. And my mom would take me to, we had a small ticket package, maybe like 10 or 12 games a year mm-hmm. so that we would go down to Shea Stadium and we would see games. And more and more as I got older, I wanted less to go to batting practice to try and get autographs and I wanted to figure out well where do the radio announcers sit during the game and you know how is their setup like and so that was what became more appealing to me and then when I got to college and got into it at first I was working behind the scenes and then um, my student radio stations in college and then eventually being on the air I just knew that this was the right place for me feeling the energy of a game first it's smaller games then it's bigger games where there's big crowds at the carrier dome where you can get upwards of 30,000 people and knowing how special those events are and that for most times you know you get to be courtside for it um, and you don't have to pay for those seats 
So that was what really sold me on knowing that that was the right place for me. Great. So we always talk about finding the right spot for a certain person. For me, I'm pretty sure it's Arizona State. For you, it was Syracuse. Staying in that area of New York, was Syracuse always the number one option or are there some other options on the table? So it's kind of funny because I applied early. And so I, is, it, is it called uh, early decision? Where you early decision, yeah. yeah. I know all about that. I still that. remember that. I got home from a high school basketball game December 15, 2006, and I checked my email. This was back in a time where the iPhone did not exist yet, so you would have to log on to the computer to check your email and see what had come in during the day. And I remember I woke my mom up because I had told her that I got in. And I said to myself before that, you know, if, if this comes back with an acceptance for me, that's where I'm going to go. But part of the reason that I applied there early was, yes, it was appealing to me. And I had gotten to visit and see what the student media scene was all about. But my mom said, she goes, well, I don't want to pay for the application fees for you to apply to Northwestern or USC or Missouri or all these other places first. So why don't we see what happens with Syracuse? And we'll figure that out. And, you know, I wouldn't say that I really like felt at home there until probably I came back from Thanksgiving break my freshman year, mm -hmm. which is not uncommon. I, I just wasn't sure if it was the right place. But once you find your friend group and you find your niche at, at college, you start to figure out that, you know, okay, I'm on the right path here. Um, and as far as, you know, you'll be going across the country to go to college, I went four hours away. So I didn't want to go too far either. And four hours was a good amount of time where nobody was just going to drop in for the weekend and surprise me. Mm -hmm. And it was still close enough that if I needed to get home in a pinch, I could make that happen. Yeah. And people forget how big New York is, the state, you know, you can go four hours up, you're still in New York. And, you know, I know Dylan's already decided on the Cronkite school, but I'm looking heavily in the new house. And, you know, it seemed like you had a lot of success there working with WAER and you graduated in December of 2010 from the uh, new house school. And what are some of the biggest lessons not that you took away, not just from your time in the classroom and courtside at Syracuse game, but what were the opportunities around Syracuse that you were able to embrace? Like the opportunities for internships or local teams, what were those opportunities like? Those were immeasurably important in, in like the full education that I got, because I think, you know, it's a, it's a multiple tiered education that you get. One is the classroom, which is a foundational piece to it of, you know, here's how we will edit audio for radio stories, or here's how we'll edit video for TV news packages. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting more of a formal education of how the equipment works and how to go and uh, cover a crime scene. But you're not necessarily, now that the uh, curriculum has expanded more there from when I was there, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on sports broadcasting, but now that it's become so popular, they've offered more classes along that line. Um, so there was the school part, there was a the student radio part, but then there was also the opportunities to go work at, there was a, it was then Clear Channel, now iHeartRadio cluster there mm -hmm. that had News Radio 570 WSYR, Sports Radio 620 WHEN, and I worked at both of those. So I got to see what a professional atmosphere looked like as well to be in the studio running the board for baseball games or to go out and cover local school board meetings mm -hmm. and, um, with the year between my junior and my senior year, that was when I interned for the Syracuse Chiefs, which are now the Syracuse yeah. Mets. As you can see, there's a lot of things that have just changed in the last 10 years. Their station that we were on is no longer even a sports station. It's a, I believe it's a music station now on the AM dial. 
Um, and that cluster, that iHeartMedia cluster, has very few people working for it anymore. It's a lot of automated stations now, which makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, but it's the nature of the radio business. So that summer of 2010, I got hired by Jason Benetti, who a lot of people now know as the voice of the White Sox and works for ESPN. Mm-hmm. And I was originally hired basically to host the pregame and the postgame show and then maybe do a couple of scoreboard updates um, in the middle innings of the game. Yeah. But after I got hired in the fall, as the spring rolled around, he never ended up, I guess, hiring a number two announcer who or whoever he wanted fell through. So then it fell to me. Wow. So I had done two summers of broadcasting in the Cape Cod Baseball League in 2008 and 2009. So I did have some baseball experience, but I was jumping into then AAA baseball, which was a big step up and admittedly probably was too big of a step for me, certainly in the early months of the season. I think I finally got my legs under me maybe in in June or July. Um, But to be able to do that was helpful in terms of the experience going forward because I knew how to host a pregame show. I knew how to call a game. I knew how to connect the equipment to the air. I knew how to interact with media who were covering the team and interact with players and staff in the clubhouse. So it was those opportunities to work in professional settings uh, outside of student radio or a classroom that were a big part of what helped me once I got out of college. Totally. So when we asked you about what got you into sports as a kid, you immediately brought up baseball and you continued to do baseball throughout college. And now you're doing baseball, basketball, and football. Was baseball the number one for you or were you keeping the window open and just keeping your eyes open for other sports as well? Well, the availability of jobs in baseball was certainly one of the things that led me to that direction. So it's kind of a funny story too, how I even ended up calling games in the Cape Cod Baseball League because I had no sports casting experience before I got to college. Mm -hmm. And I started applying for jobs in the Cape League, maybe in like December or January of my freshman year. So just a couple of months into college and still like no tape to speak of, no resume reel or anything like that. So the guy who is one of the originators of broadcasting in the Cape League, his name is Dan Duva. And he's now the radio voice of the Vegas Golden Knights of the NHL. So he started out his college career at Syracuse. I send my application into the team that I ended up working for, the Falmouth Commodores, and their uh, coordinator of broadcasting, volunteer position, the guy who ran it at the time, Pat Loftus, he's since passed away, but he was a retiree from Wall Street. So he didn't really know a lot about broadcasting, but he did know that Dan Duva was one of the first to broadcast in the Cape and had gone to Syracuse. So he sends an email to Dan and says, hey, do you have anybody you can recommend from Syracuse? Well, as it happens, my application comes in the next day. So he thinks that I have been recommended by Dan Duva, and that is not true at all, but it was just lucky timing on my part that somebody with no experience applied to somebody who really hadn't screened people for this type of a position before. And so I got the job not having a clue of really how to do baseball play-by-play. Um, And then once I got out of school, I graduated in December of 2010, as you said. So I left a semester early. Um, I had come in with with some extra credits, so I was able to graduate a little bit early. And the thing that was open at that time, um, you know, you're leading into the baseball season. So I went to Dayton, Ohio, and that was my first minor league baseball job. So it was what I had the most experience calling, but I never had some grand plan of where things were going to go or some five-year, 10-year plan. Um, It was just, especially at the beginning of my career, 
what's next? You know, what's, what's out there that I can do that somebody will hire me to do and I'll pack up my car and I'll go live there for however long that season is, however long that job is. Uh, and then I'll go on to the next thing. Well, you did go on to the next thing with ESPN in 2012, where you definitely broadened your horizons outside of your five years doing minor league baseball. You're calling numerous college sports. You've called college sport for Vermont as well, for the women's basketball team, and then also high school basketball as well. So how is it with you? How do you like the experience of not covering one team specifically over the fact that you can cover so many different teams at ESPN? How do you like that flexibility where you get to cover maybe two new teams every week, depending on your game? Yeah, it's one of the, my most favorite things about working for a national network, because when you're covering, let's say like I did a minor league baseball team or uh, at Vermont, I covered the women's basketball team. You know, most of the seasons you have in, in working for any team are not going to end with a championship. And some of them might even be dismally bad seasons. You know, the, the Vermont season that I was there, I think they won maybe like 10 games. So it wasn't a great successful season. And so that makes it a little bit more challenging day in and day out. You know, if you're hosting a coach's show or you're interviewing somebody before every game of trying to come up with creative ways to say, well, how are you going to try and not lose today? You know, you have to really dance around things. And if you're on the air and a team is getting, your team is getting blown out, you know, you can't say, hey, well, you know, they're really stinking it up today. That's not really going to fly with your audience or the people who are paying you to announce the games for those fans. So from the perspective that I have now of seeing teams from a 30,000-foot view every week and you just drop in and you're hitting the major headlines for the people who are watching in a national audience, I like that because I'm not somebody who likes to sugarcoat things. And if somebody's playing bad, I have the freedom to point that out or mm – -hmm coach has said something boneheaded you have the freedom to be critical of them for saying that so I, I enjoy that aspect of it and I think it keeps things fresh too because every week like I said right at the beginning when we started is I like to have that research element and to be able to dig in and find new things and so you know especially when you're covering a, a baseball team for an entire season it's in the minors 140 something games in the majors 162 maybe plus playoffs mm -hmm. you're at that point you're really magnifying minutiae and digging really deep for things that, you know, to be honest, for game 83 of a baseball season might not be all that interesting if your team's already out of the playoff race. But every week with a national broadcast, you get to pick the biggest storylines and hit those. And then you pack up your shop and you're on to the next thing the next week. So it's always something new and it's always something different. And for me, one of the, par the parts I love too is to get to meet new people all the time. And that's what comes with that part of the job as well. And I love that. Yeah. I wanted to stick with the research part. That's something that really just interests me so much because everyone has their own perspective on it. Are you a film guy? Are you a stats guy? What's your perspective on research through the week? When I started, I was very stat heavy. Yep. And that stems from, you know, the first time that I did TV, I was 23, 24 years old. And so I just didn't have as much experience as I do now at age 30 of having seen college basketball and, and knowing exactly how the sport works and all the dynamics of it. And, you know, part of that is paying closer attention, but also just by osmosis, you learn things along the way. But what I've learned, especially in TV, is that stats can be overwhelming. Yep. And I try to only pick stats that really – point something out. So let's just say 
you know, back in 2014, my first college football season, I would list for every team on the offensive chart, I would say, well, here, where do they rank in the country out of 131, 132 teams in passing offense per game, in rushing offense per game? And if the number was 57th, like, that's not really that exciting. I don't need to mention that on the year. But if they're 17th in the country and first in their conference, that's worth mentioning. But if it's a pedestrian number, I'm not going to say it just to say it. When I watch tape, I don't necessarily watch for the X's and O's stuff because that's not what my eyes and my brain are trained to do. That's what the analyst who I'm working with is trained to do. Yep. If we have the opportunity, which is more often in football, to sit down and watch tape together on a Thursday or a Friday before a Saturday game, I love to do that because I can sit there and say, hey, pause that. When you explain this, what exactly did you mean by that? And then they can show things to me that assuredly I will have never noticed before because when I watch the game, I have to watch where the ball is going. When they watch the game, they're watching everything off the ball that's happening. So it's just things that I would never even look for. Um, but as I've gone along, I've learned that the things that really stand out way more than stats are going to be stories. And so it's about getting to know people. You know, one of the things that is constantly preached to us and we can never be reminded often enough at ESPN is before you analyze somebody, humanize them. Tell me why I should care about them before you just tell me that they're the leading rusher in the ACC, because that might go, you know, over my head really quickly, but I might remember if, you know, they, you know, like Mackenzie Milton is somebody who comes to mind at first, the quarterback at UCF, Mm -hmm. who suffered a broken leg a couple years ago and has been working his way back. And like when he gets back to playing shape, that's going to be a big storyline around his comeback. And, and really it should be. Um, so it's things like that of what kind of a hardship has somebody overcome or what makes them unique? Um, you know, there was a, there was a player at Temple a couple years ago and I remember sitting with him at one of their defensive ends. I want to say Jacob Evans was his name mm -hmm. and he was, a huge photographer. He was so passionate about photography. And we sat and talked with him about that for 30 minutes. I don't even know how much football we even discussed. But it's things like that, that when you walk away from a game, you know, what my goal is, is certainly to make the game entertaining, but I also want to inform you and I want to educate you so that when you walk away, you have something that you didn't know before, whether it is an X's and O's piece or whether it's a human interest piece, just something that made your time invested in the broadcast worthwhile beyond the score. So when you were talking about that Temple player just a second ago who was a big photographer, not only a football player, you said you got that information out of him during a pregame meeting, I assume. So yeah. how valuable is not only just those pregame meetings with players and coaches, but also reading up on numerous articles online, trying to find those storylines that you want to tell in a game, but you just don't know it because you haven't covered the team before. How important are those two things to the storytelling of the broadcast? Almost equally important. One of them takes a lot more time than the other. I would say if I made a, a pie chart of my time during the week leading up to travel before a college football game, it would probably look something like 60% is just reading. Mm -hmm. So I love it when college sports information staffs compile their news clippings together and they can just yeah. send us a zip file or a huge PDF on Monday morning because I'm like, boom, give me my coffee, I'm ready to go, and I'm just gonna be reading all day. Yeah. Um, if that's not the case, it does make it a little bit harder. Uh, some places you have to be creative in trying to work around paywalls, because if I'm covering a team once, you know, no offense to that city's newspaper, but I don't need a year's subscription to read articles for a week. Yeah. Uh, that said though, support your local news outlets, that is important. Um, 
but yeah, so I love when, when we're able to just get that all in one place. Some schools will give you only the really positive news articles, so then you have to go search out the not so positive news articles. But I like that because part of my routine anyway, when I wake up in the morning is, you know, I'm looking at the New York Times, I'm looking at the Washington Post, I'm looking at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I just want to know what's going on in general. That's who I am. I'm an, an avid news consumer. So that's part of the fun for me is, is chasing down those stories. And then, you know, an important part too is attributing those because those local beat reporters on the ground are telling these great stories that without them, we wouldn't know those stories necessarily. We may sit with a player for 15 or 20 minutes, but that's not enough to really get to know somebody like the local people do. So I make a habit too out of when I'm on the air saying, hey, you know, there was a great story told this week in the Raleigh News and Observer or in the South Bend Tribune or um, you know, in, in, in whatever the local paper might be, because it's important to let people know that, um, you know, they, they should look to those sources too. So it's, it's, a, it's a big ecosystem. But yeah, when I sit with players and coaches, I think in the last couple of years, I've asked way fewer X's and O's and game strategy questions, because I'm just like, tell me about where you came from. Where did you grow up? What was it like there? What do you do for fun off the court? How can I get to know you as not somebody who throws a football or shoots a basketball or kicks a soccer ball, but as a human being, because that's going to be the most important stuff that we take away from this game. Mm -hmm. Something that we always hear is versatility. And that's something that I actually went through because our story is, my story is that I used to pl do play-by-play -play for football, for the football team before Ian came along in our TV program. And I didn't really enjoy it as much. Then I found my niche in hockey this year and I'm all in for hockey and I love it so much you found a little versatility in Frisbee. How, how was that story behind there? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was in the summer of 2013. And I had started doing games for ESPN freelance in the 2012-2013 college basketball season. So only a few months before. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was still working as the full-time broadcaster for the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, the Padres affiliate in Indiana. So I did a couple years of freelance before I came on full-time with ESPN. And this Frisbee opportunity came up. And this is where the luck is just such a huge factor because not only had ultimate, we call it in the, in the sport, ultimate, ultimate Frisbee is just a little too long. So in ultimate, there had never really been very much televised coverage of it. There was, I want to say from like one or two summers before CBS sports network had done one event. So that was kind of what I had to go off of as to like, how do I even do this? I knew nothing about the sport. And the real lucky part of it is that the guy who ended up being the analyst for those broadcasts that I did a couple that summer, his name's Evan Lepler. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was the play-by-play -play voice of the Salem Red Sox, also a minor league baseball team. Yeah. And he played ultimate in college at Wake Forest. So he was serving in the role of analyst here, but by nature, he's really a play-by-play -play guy. So he knew that he had an infinitely bigger trough of knowledge to work with than I did. So I would hit the main storylines, the names, the score, you know, what's at stake. But he could really go deep into stuff and highlight stuff where, you know, there were certain times where, admittedly, I wasn't sure what was happening because I hadn't really watched a lot of the sport beforehand. But he was very willing to allow me to ask stupid questions and be forgiving when I had more stupid questions. Um, but one of the other hard parts, too, in Ultimate is that the team names and logos are not what you expect from your 
NCAA teams because they're not licensed to use the nicknames or the logos. So all of the school names and logos are different than the actual, you know, the Iowa Hawkeyes, the Syracuse Orange, the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. None of those are allowed to be used because they don't pay for the licenses. Mm. So in addition to learning the rules and the history and the names, you also have to learn new nicknames and color schemes. So it was hard, but it was fun. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to say that I was involved with it because it was really cool. I mean, it's always great when we see, I mean, definitely as a young broadcaster, we have to take every opportunity we can get. You know, Dylan was able to find his opportunity with hockey. I call football and basketball, but I've also called lacrosse. I never picked up a lacrosse stick in my life. So those are the times when you really do need to rely on your color analyst to kind of, you know, let them take control at times because they know what they're talking about. And it sounds like when you told me what a stack defense was. I mean, look, I try to forget what I, that I used to play football, but besides <laughs> that, you know, I'm not going to the NFL. I'm not going to play in college. But how important is it for you, Mike, when you have a different color analyst maybe every single week? How hard is it to build a relationship with them on the fly, in a sense? And how important is it to have that kind of relationship heading into a game where you can rely on them to tell you a, a stack defense is or something that you don't know? The X's knows, as you mentioned earlier. It sounds kind of cliche to say it, but I don't think you can underestimate the power of having a meal with somebody mm. and just sitting down, whether it's the night before or if you're more of an early riser to get up and have coffee together and just get to talk with that person and understand what's their area of expertise and what's their background and what's their speaking pattern, right? Because a lot of what we do is nonverbal cues and picking up where you think somebody's finished a sentence and to, to know when you can jump in and what questions you can ask or if there's anything that you know if you have a really good analyst they'll say hey I want to talk about this during the game make sure you set us up and get us there and so I'll say to them you know if there's anything that you want to hit on let me know that you know because I want to be able to lead you there and set you up and make us all as a show look as good as possible so the more you work with somebody, the more you're going to get to know them, the more you're going to know what their areas of expertise are. But if you're working with somebody for the first time and it's on short notice, you both know that, hey, we got to try and make this thing work. And so you understand what each other's strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, if there's something that that analyst doesn't have uh, a great background in, you know, if it's a former quarterback, you don't want to ask them what's the secret to being a great nose tackle. So it, it's knowing all those kind of things that are going to help make the show overall better. The last question I had for today is just a simple one. What is the stadium or the place that you went that you just felt starstruck to be in as a fan? Maybe you saw that place on TV. You were like, I'd never think I would be there. And I was there. Fenway. This is a couple summers ago. And my wife uh, and I, she's now my wife wasn't at the time, but we had gone maybe in June or July. Uh, we flew into Boston and we went, and we did a little bit of sightseeing around the city. And one of the things that we did, um, given that we met working in baseball, was we went on a guided tour of Fenway. They take you in big groups. And so we walked around and we did the whole thing. And we went to the North End and we had cannoli and Italian food. And it was a great trip. And so I'm walking around Fenway, which I had been to before when I worked in the Cape League, but not a ballpark that I've been to, say, as many times as like Shea Stadium or City Field around where I grew up. And so Fenway is just one of those parks that has such immense history to it. And then a couple months later, I get uh, the opportunity with ESPN radio to go do an Indians Red Sox game at Fenway. 
And I just like, there's not a lot of moments in my life where I'm just like, I can't believe that I'm here. Mm -hmm. But that was absolutely one of them because I was like, two months ago, I'm just some schmo with like, uh, you know, a sticker on his shirt walking around on a tour in here and going, wow, like there's pesky pole and there's the green monster and let's take a selfie. And now like, I have to compose myself because I'm being paid to be there on behalf of my employer. And I'm calling this game and you just walk into the booth and the view of that field and to look out on the center field bleachers, like it's just unbelievable. And the way the sun sets there, that was immensely cool for me because I just couldn't believe how quickly that had happened. Um, and I had called big league games before I'd been to Pittsburgh. I'd been to Kansas city, but to be somewhere that has that much history um, and where I was just as a, as a civilian, if you will, not that long ago, that was a, a star, an awestruck moment for me. And the last question that I have is, you know, as you mentioned, you had such a quick turnaround from two months ago, you were there as a fan, and then now you're calling a game in one of the most historic ballparks in America. So our last question that we ask all our broadcasters that we have on is a young broadcaster would look at you and, and see nothing but success, 30 years old, working for ESPN, calling college football, basketball, and even some MLB games. But and ultimate, Ian. Don't forget ultimate. ultimate Frisbee, taking every opportunity you can get. You've done pretty much every sport in the book. So I guess the question is, and you do have, you've worked really hard to get to where you are today. What is one or two pieces of advice that you'd give young broadcasters to, you know, get to where they want to be and, you know, something that they should live by if they want to have success in this business? The power of yes is immense. Mm -hmm. To be able to say yes to any opportunity that comes your way and to dive into that, not thinking about what the end result is going to be, but what the process will entail for you and how that will make you better. So, you know, when it was in the summer of 2008, when I knew nothing about doing play-by-play -play and had to scrape together a living situation, and I worked at a t-shirt and flip-flop store during the day on Cape Cod, and then the next summer, I found my job on Craigslist and I worked at a baseball academy as like the pseudo office manager uh, with no relevant experience, but like that was what I needed to do to be able to have gas money and to be able to go eat dinner at 7-Eleven because that was what I could afford to do. And then the next summer of like saying yes to, you know, I would have loved to have continued doing play-by-play, -play, but I said yes to hosting the pregame and the postgame and like I lucked my way into calling games that Steven Strasburg did uh, during the summer of 2010 when he made his ascent into the big leagues. Like one of the coolest experiences of my life. You'll see the picture over my shoulder right here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be a meteorologist any, anytime soon. <laughs> um, but where you, can, where you can see the brightest lights right here above my yeah. finger, that yeah. is the, the stadium in Syracuse, the night that Steven Strasburg made his AAA debut in Syracuse. Wow. And the announced attendance there was like, 14,000 people and the average attendance for a game was probably like 3,000 and that was even too high to even be real um so that that was just like amazing and I and I totally like kind of just stumbled into that situation but the point is that the next opportunity came from the previous opportunity for me so somebody that I did a good job for in the past said hey you might want to talk to this person because they might have an opportunity that could be available to you and so that was a huge part of it for me. It's like so much of it was luck. I, I watched this interview earlier this morning, actually, with Scott Van Pelt, that, and he was talking about his career and how he went from 
working in a local TV station to somebody said, hey, you want to come work for the Golf Channel? Sure, I'll go work for the Golf Channel. Then he covered Tiger Woods. And then he went to go work for ESPN. But like never in that plan or never in that time frame was there really a plan of like, I'm going to go work for ESPN one day. It was just like, say yes to the next thing. Say yes to the next thing because you really love it. And so along the way, there's going to be luck, right? Like I got lucky, Scott got lucky, but there's also then you take that luck, grab onto it as tight as you can and keep working even harder than you've ever worked before. Another part too, is I think really good, what you guys have done with this series is getting to know people who are out there in the business and you understand how they got to where they are. What you can already learn through a short time of doing this series is there's no one conventional path to get to where you want to be. Mm -hmm. I always dreamed about doing what I'm doing now, but I never would have imagined that I'd be doing it by age 30. I certainly didn't imagine I'd be doing it at age 24. I thought it would take way longer than this, but you just don't know how it's going to happen. So, you know, it's a combination of saying yes to a lot of things, being willing to turn down family parties, birthdays, weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever the case may be, because when you know, when we're working is when other people are having fun going to sporting events. So you go and do all those things, keeping a great sense of humility, because you never know who the person might be that can help you get to the next step. And that's just a generally good rule of thumb for life is to be a humble and kind person. And then having a sense of curiosity too, because I don't think that being a good sportscaster or being a good newscaster comes from knowing all of the stats from the 1998 Yankees. Like, as we talked about before, stats for me have become increasingly less relevant unless there's something that you want to pin on a bulletin board. But it's about having a well-rounded knowledge so that when you do work with analysts from all different walks of life, whether you're working ultimate Frisbee, football, basketball, baseball, now I'm doing wrestling too on the NCAA level, you're going to meet people who you never would have otherwise met. And so to be as well-rounded as possible to go anywhere that you want to go or need to go, because you don't know what's going to happen once the red light turns on and you're live on TV, that's going to make you the best broadcaster possible. And that's just the people you're working with, let alone the people you're meeting who are the athletes and the coaches who may come from different backgrounds than you did and from different places in the country. So, you know, it's being a well-rounded person, being a good person, and being somebody who's willing to say yes to anything. And that includes, you know, I got lucky that I didn't have to pack up and move necessarily all the way across the country. You know, everywhere I could go, I didn't have that many belongings to begin with. So I threw them all in the back of my car and I could drive everywhere. Yeah. Because uh, the farthest west I went was uh, to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then I've stayed kind of in the Midwest and upper Northeast. Um, but yeah, those, those have all been crucial elements for me. And uh, luck certainly plays a factor too. Well, luck plays a factor, but you definitely put the work in, said yes to every opportunity. And even though it was a lot sooner than you expected, you've gotten so far to where you've wanted to be in your sports broadcasting career. Joined by Dylan Pescator, I'm Ian Nicholas. This was another episode of the Beyond the Whistle podcast with ESPN's Mike Cousins. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.